You're listening to the eFree Lethbridge Podcast. Annie Dillard spent a year in a house at Tinker Creek in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. And for some of you, that sounds like paradise, like something you'd like to do. And others of you, that sounds like a nightmare, like not by myself, not in nature, no thank you. But she loved it and she published her observations in a book called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. And she went to this house in Tinker Creek to understand God through the natural phenomenon around her. And throughout the book, she wrestles with this collision of beauty and cruelty that she sees in nature and what this collision of beauty and cruelty says about its creator. In the end, she doesn't come up with any answers, but she fully embraces the beauty and the mystery and the absurdity and sometimes even the terror of creation. And she says this partway through the book, the wonder is that all the forms are not monsters, that there is beauty at all, grace, gratuitous, pennies found. This then is the extravagant landscape of the world given, given with pizzazz, given in good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Annie Dillard went to this house in Tinker Creek to seek answers to the question, why? Why is there such evil? Why is there such waste? Why is there such suffering in the world? And rather than coming up with answers, she encountered the God behind the question, the God who created and sustains all things. And this has been the message, really, of our series throughout the summer as we've been in the book of Psalms. What do we do with our doubt, despair, and our delight? We bring it to God. What do we do with our anxiety and our anger? We entrust it to God. What do we do with our protest, our lament, and our praise? We direct it to God. It's the only safe thing that there is for us to do with it. Miroslav Wolf, uh, professor of theology at Princeton, says this, and he's speaking specifically of anger, but it's true for all of our emotions. It's not safe simply bottled up in my own being. It's not safe in some public space of venting our collective feelings. It is safe, and I would add the word only there, in the space where it is placed before the one God. That's what I've appreciated about our sermon series through the Psalms. Like Annie Dillard, they unflinchingly look at the realities of the world, and even when they cannot figure it all out, even when it doesn't make sense to them, they end up expressing their faith in and to God. And sometimes when we look at the realities of our world, it leads to lament. Like we looked at a couple weeks ago in Psalm 88, God, this is broken, this is wrong, how long will this continue, why is this happening? And sometimes those same realities when we look at our world lead us to praise. Like in our Psalm, Psalm 148. Psalm 148 is part of a crescendo of praise that concludes the book of Psalms. I hadn't really given it much thought previously, but I sort of assumed that the order of the Psalms didn't really matter too much. Essentially, it would be sort of like listening to a playlist on Spotify, on Shuffle, and then one day the editors just kind of locked it in and said, this is the order that we are going to write them all down in. 
people who are smarter than me, which doesn't take a lot. Notice that as you progress through the book of Psalms, though, the Psalms of lament occur with less frequency, and the Psalms of praise occur with more frequency as you get closer to the end. And it starts with the Psalms of Ascent, those songs that the pilgrims would sing on the way to Jerusalem and on the way to the temple, and it continues to build through these last eight or so chapters of the book, characterized by beginning and ending with praise the Lord. It starts to build up. And and some of these praise songs and some of the creation psalms throughout the book of the psalms give me this feeling of being at like a rave or or a Kaylee, an East Coast kitchen party filled with clapping trees and dancing waves and shouts of joy. This psalm, Psalm 148, is grand. And it's joyful, but it gives me the feeling of something more like a classical symphonic arrangement. It's grand and majestic. And it even includes some dark and heavy notes. Maybe even part of the psalm might have been sung in a minor key. It begins with a burst. Praise the Lord. And and then I imagine the psalmist like a conductor cueing the high notes, the flutes, the harps. Starts with the highest heavens, angels and angel armies. Sun, moon, stars, the celestial sea, and they come in. And then the eight prompts to praise him provide the percussive rhythm of the psalm. And then he signals the low notes, the double bass and tubas, the bassoons and the bass drums, the great sea creatures, the depths of the ocean, and then all the other instruments. Lightning and hail, maybe like clashing cymbals and kettle drums, wailing winds, this might be where we play in a minor key for a little while, mountains, trees, animals, wild animals, this might be kind of the jazz portion of the symphony, and domesticated animals, and then the creepy crawling creatures and the ascending larks and soaring birds. And finally, he cues the choir, and what a choir. I mean, you guys sounded good today, but just imagine for a moment this choir filled with kings and and filled with people from all languages and all cultural groups around the world, rulers and commoners, men and women, young and old, all united in praise of God. And the psalm not only calls us to praise, but it tells us why we should praise. We find the first reason in verse five and six. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for at his command they were created, and he established them forever and ever. He issued a decree that will never pass away. Praise the Lord, because God has created all things and established them forever. Everything, everything in heaven, everything in earth, everything under the earth was created by God at his command, by his will, for his pleasure, for his glory. And everything, everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth is sustained by God at his command, by his will, for his pleasure, for his glory. Sometimes because we live in a Western culture in a modernist age, we sometimes think of creation or are tempted to compare creation to a machine and to God as the ultimate machinist. This is, in fact, one of the tenets of an apologetic argument is if this great design was a clock, who is the clock maker? 
Annie Dillard contends creation is more dependent on God than a machine on the machinist. She says, the question of who is thinking the thought is more fruitful than the question of who made the machine. For a machinist can, of course, wipe his hands and leave, and his simple machine still hums. But if the thinker's attention strays for a moment, a minute, his simplest thought ceases altogether. We owe our existence to God. He formed us in our mother's womb, and he gave us breath. And and what we need to understand is that we owe our continued existence to God. It's his breath in our lungs. It's by his will that our heart takes every beat. Praise the Lord. Every morning, the sun rises. Praise the Lord, he made that happen. And again the next day, praise the Lord. Every breath, every heartbeat, praise the Lord. Every meal that you have, praise the Lord, he's the provider. Every bloom on every flower, praise the Lord, he's the creator of that. Every kernel on every ear, every potato in every hill, every zucchini on the plant, and there's usually so much zucchini. (laughs) Created by God, sustained by God, Praise the Lord. William Colin Bryant, an American poet in the early 1800s, maybe reflecting on this psalm, says this, my heart is awed within me when I think of the great miracle which still goes on in silence round me, the perpetual work of thy creation, finished, yet renewed forever. And since it is renewed every day forever, so should our praise be renewed every day, forever. That should be enough reason to praise, right? Like sit down, Jeremy, call the worship team, let's go. But God's not done yet. And neither is the psalmist. He gives us a second reason to praise, down in verse 13. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. Praise the Lord, because God is greater. His name alone is exalted. It's significant that the psalmist calls on all creation to praise the Lord because the ancients that surrounded Israel worshiped created things. They worshiped the sun, the moon, the stars. They worshiped bulls and sea creatures. They often even worshiped humans. Human rulers were gods to them. And the psalmist puts all of those things that people like to worship in their proper place before God. Angels, God is greater. Angelic armies, God is greater. Sun, moon, stars, God is greater. Sea monsters, God is greater. Storms, God is greater. Kings, princes, God is greater. Only God is God. And only his name is exalted. Everything else was created by God for God. Praise him in the heights because there is no place too high for the praise of the most high. Praise him, you kings and you princes and all the rulers because God has a greater power than you do and an even greater claim to praise than you. Charles Spurgeon, who's known as the Prince of Preachers, says this about the passage, the highest and most wonderful of creatures are perfectly obedient to the statutes of the great king. This submission is praise. Obedience is homage. Order is harmony. 
And if that's true for angels and stars, storms and mountains, if it's true for kings and princes, then it's true for us as well. The greatest thing that we can do to worship God is to obey him and follow him and submit to him. Obedience is homage. Submission is praise. There's a warning in this reason to praise as well. See, we are not so unlike our ancestors as we would like to imagine in that we are also tempted to worship things other than God. Maybe not sun stars or sharks, but other things that point us, should point us to God, but end up distracting us. Things like money and possessions rather than worshiping the provider of those things. Things like our own aptitudes, abilities, and accomplishments rather than the source of strength and wisdom that provides those things to us. The psalmist reminds us that everything we have, everything we are, and everything we do is because of God for God. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We find the third reason to praise at the end of verse 13. Let me read the whole thing again. Let them praise the name of the Lord for his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens. Praise the Lord because God's glory is greater than all creation can proclaim. Notice he claims the earth and the heavens is his. He needs it all to proclaim his praise. I remember years ago, I think uh, just after I was married, I wanted to play some hockey with some, some hockey teams and I got on as a substitute in a men's hockey league and I didn't get called very often, but one day... I got called. The problem was that I had been skiing all day and I came home and I got a phone call, we need you to come play hockey. And I explained to the captain of the team that I don't go skiing very often and so my legs are done. I'm going to be essentially as effective as a pylon on the blue line. And he said, come out, we need you. We, without you, we don't have enough and we'll have to forfeit. And so I did and I basically was a pylon on the blue line, but they didn't have to forfeit the game. And there's a hint of the same thing in the Psalms. It's not enough. Without you, we don't have enough. Please join in praising God. We need you. Kings are joining in. Not enough. Join in, princes. We need you, all of you. Join in, commoners. Join in young and old men and women. Join in those who can sing well and those who think they can't sing, and maybe you're right, but we still need you. The invitation is inclusive. You are invited. Raise your voice. We need you. And even if everybody in this room sang with full-throated praise to God and everybody around the world throughout history sang in full-throated praise to God, it would still not be enough. Leslie Allen in his commentary says, God's people need helpers. Their loudest and longest praise cannot match his work and status. Only with the concerted voices of all his creatures can a significant attempt be made to reflect his majesty back to him. All the angels, 
all the heaven's armies, all the stars, all the ocean depths, all the hills, all the trees and and domesticated animals and wild animals, all the rulers and all nations, all God's works united in praise of God isn't enough to express his glory. His glory is greater than that. This is just the prelude. It's just the opening act. We need more. Join in. Praise the Lord. This brings us to the end of the song the end of the psalm, and our final reason to praise the Lord, verse 14. And he has raised up for his people a horn, the praise of all his faithful servants of Israel, the people close to his heart. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord because he has rescued and restored us. There's two defining moments in Israel's history. The first is God rescuing them from slavery in Egypt, the Exodus. And the second is God restoring them from captivity in Babylon, the the return from exile. It's what we've been studying in the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to return there in the next few weeks. And it's possible, there's some scholars who think that this psalm, Psalm 148, was actually written as part of the celebration described in the book of Nehemiah at the dedication of the wall to celebrate the fact that God has rescued his people from exile and restored them to Jerusalem. You see, when it says that he has raised up for his people a horn, the horn is a symbol of strength in scripture. One of my professors said that we should translate that according to the old Dodge Ram commercial. Ram tough. God has raised up somebody who is ram tough. And he will make his people ram tough. He will sustain them. He will restore them and keep them strong. Praise the Lord. And of course, the exodus and the exile were just the appetizer in the soup course in terms of God's redemptive history. Right? The, the ultimate horn that God would raise up isn't David, and it's not Nehemiah, it's Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't just rescue his people from Egypt, and he didn't just restore them from Babylon. He freed us from the power of sin and the power of death. He rescued us from sin. He restored us to life, brought us from death to life, and he reconciled us with God and to God. He makes rescue and restoration available not to just one ethnic group, but to all nations. All nations, all people can become his people. You can become part of these this people who are close to his heart just by accepting Jesus, trusting Jesus, that he is the rescuer, he is the redeemer, he is the restorer. And of course, we live in the now and the not yet. We experience these two opposing realities in our lives, this abundant life and and freedom that begins now and extends forever to eternity. And at the same time, we experience the effects of sin and death that limit us and weigh us down. The Bible speaks of both realities. Jesus has rescued us from sin and death, and death is the last enemy to be destroyed. Creation recognizes this reality. In Psalm 148, it sings with joy and exuberance. And in Romans chapter 8, the song takes on a minor key with dark notes as creation groans, waiting for its liberation from death, decay, and destruction. 
The psalmists recognize this reality as well. Many of the songs in the Psalms are sung with tears of mourning and grief dripping down the face, sung with a fist raised to heaven protesting, why and how long does this have to last for? That's part of our song. That's part of how we worship while we wait. And the amazing thing that we learn through scripture, particularly is through the Psalms, is that if all we have is a broken heart and a crushed spirit and we bring it to God, he accepts it as worship. It's acceptable to him. And yet, even while we wait in that reality of the continued and lingering effects of death and decay in our world, we can still praise the Lord. Because there will be a day when the rescue will be complete. There will be a day when the restoration will be finished. There will be a day when there will be no more death or no more mourning, no more crying or pain, and Jesus himself will wipe away the tears from our eyes. So while we wait, we can praise God because he has raised up a horn for his people. He has sent a redeemer and the rescue has begun. And someday, someday, he will come again and we will experience life like we've never experienced it before. So what do you think, worship team? Can you lead us in some praise and worship of God? Psalm 150 says that we should praise God with trumpet, harp, lyre, tambourine, and pipes. We got keys, strings, and percussion, so why don't you take it away? And it's good as it's gonna be, it's not enough. It's not enough to express God's glory. We need you, so praise him. Praise him, you preschool students and elementary students and middle school students and high school students, university and college students. Praise him, those of you who are working or parenting or retired. Praise him, all nations and cultures and ethnic groups. Praise him whether you think you can sing or you think you can't sing. We need your voice. Praise him because God has created us. Praise him because he sustains us. He gives us breath. Praise him because he rescues us and he restores us. And praise him because he keeps his promises. And even though we still walk through too many dark valleys in our life, he is with us and he will come again. And there will be a day when all the things that are broken, including our hearts, will be restored. And all things sad will come untrue. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let's stand and join the worship team. Thanks for listening to the E-Free Lethbridge podcast. We'll see you next week.